All right, well, good morning. Um, yeah, well, uh, I was hoping to present some kind of um, re-entry plan to you today, but um, according to the governor's um, conference, press conference, we are going to sustain, I guess, the stay-home order, the lockdown, and, um, and that's, I guess, the way that it goes. Uh, we're currently forbidden, as you know, to meet in large groups, so we're just going to have to continue as we are and, and really just be thankful uh, for what we have. Um, I'm trying to um, obey Paul's command to complain about nothing, but to be thankful for all things and in all things. Um, I'm probably a lot like you right now. It's not that easy. Um, I miss people. I miss being together and uh, all of the essential things of our faith. And so uh, just keep praying and uh, <clears throat> praying that things would lift, things would loosen, and that we're going to uh, be able to get back together. So as soon as the uh, restrictions do begin to loosen, we will develop a course of action and we'll submit that to you, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So, well, um, <clears throat> we are in Hebrews chapter 13 which continues with more instruction regarding Christian conduct. And um, in this chapter, there's a combination, really, of short uh, Christian exhortations mingled with theology that is in keeping with that instruction. And as we understand, a good biblical theology leads to godly living. Uh, and you'll probably notice that as we go uh, through this, that some exhortations are related to a previous thought, while others appear to be quite random, uh, even though they're appropriate. And then, of course, there's going to be plenty of application along the way. Uh, toward the end of the chapter, though, uh, well, I don't want to say that just yet, but uh, the end of the chapter will present Paul's benediction and then his final greeting. Uh, but that's not going to concern us this morning. This morning, uh, I will be talking about some things that defile the marriage bed uh, in verse 4 of chapter 13. And I'll be mentioning some things that you may not want your kids to hear, uh, or maybe you do. Um, I would encourage high school uh, age kids and older to listen, but they're your children. You decide. Uh, I'm not going to belabor the issues uh, or be graphic, but I will be addressing some of the things that, excuse me, are becoming common and accepted in our culture. And uh, sad to say that uh, even some people that profess faith are embracing uh, <clears throat> again, those things will be discussed in verse 4, which will be towards uh, the, uh, the latter end of our, dis our time together. So you can start your exit strategy for your children at that time if you so desire. So if you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. I'll be reading God's word to you from the New King James Version, and uh, we'll be covering verses 1 through 4. The author conveys this to us. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, as always, I thank you for 
the time that we have together, even though it is not ideal. And I thank you that we can continue to uh, broadcast uh, in our worship and, uh, Lord, the scriptures. Thank you also for uh, our Sunday school teachers who are uh, recording and doing their Sunday school classes online for some of our young people. And I just pray that you would bless all of that. And, um, and Lord, as always, we want to continue to um, keep our leaders in prayer, our government officials, as uh, they are making decisions, uh, whether or not they're decisions that we like or agree with, Lord, we uh, pray that they would make the right decision. And perhaps, who knows, in the end, uh, they'll make right decisions in spite of themselves. Uh, but we do pray that you would be with them. We pray that you would hasten uh, the time that we can be back together and, uh, and have person-to-person fellowship and worship together. And Lord, I pray that from our text this morning, Uh, You have something you want to address to each of us, and I pray that you would do that um, in only uh, the only way that you can, Lord. So thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll return to uh, verse one, if you will, where the author says, let brotherly love continue. Now, this was already discussed in Romans 12, verse 10, uh, during our Thursday night study. But here, in Hebrews, it's not stated as a description of Christian conduct, uh, as it was in Romans 12. Here, the author states it as a command. Uh, Both are essentially communing the same thing, but the imperative comes with more force. Uh, The command pertains to the continuation of uh, what he calls brotherly love. It's Philadelphia in the Greek. It's fraternal uh, affection. He wants this to persist among these persecuted Christians. Now, it's hard to tell what might have happened in the fellowship that provoked the author to give this directive, but it could have been uh, just about anything. Uh, It could have been an argument over the the church decor or whether or not men should have beards. Uh, It's usually a pretty uh, petty difference uh, that leads to big problems. At least that is the way that church history has gone, sadly so. It's sad that Christians can be um, some of the most immature people on the planet. Uh, Whatever it was, uh, the text, I think, is implying that it was diminishing their affection for one another and endangering the health of the church. Uh, And so as believers, we cannot cannot afford to let our, our guard down when it comes to the greatest of all virtues, the one that constantly seeks the greatest good for the sake of others. And then, as Paul says, It's the one virtue that binds all the other virtues together. He said that in Colossians, as he's elevating the priority of love, saying that it stands above everything else, even compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness, patience, and even forgiveness. Uh, He says it binds them together, holds them together. Colossians chapter three, verses 12 through 14. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love always upholds these virtues and never fails in them. Uh, You know the passage, the famous passage on love. Uh, Love never fails, and it never fails in any of its expressions. And then in Galatians 5, uh, all of these qualities are actually listed subsequent to love, which is probably to say that they're they're all the godly expressions of love or the various manifestations of love. Uh, They're what love looks like in practice, love is patient, love is kind, and so forth. Uh, it's always seeking uh, the greatest good of its beloved. 
In fact, very few attributes of God are stated uh, so emphatically as this one uh, from 1 John 4, 8, says that God is love. And so to be like God, to be like Christ, Christians must continue in love, uh, manifesting its various qualities for the sake of others. And when we do that, uh, major squabbles and uh, minor injuries are put to rest. And according to Jesus, uh, interestingly enough, he says it's the attribute of love that should be the church's identifying mark. He said there is one way that people will know that we are his disciples. And he says that's by our love for one another, John 13, 35. Yeah, so it won't be the number of church splits or denominational factions. It will be love. Of course, truth is the one condition for fellowship, but without love, uh, we're not worthy of the name Christian. So love ought to continue among us. Verse two, the author says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, much of this also was already discussed uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, uh, minus the bit on the angels. The words to entertain strangers are actually one word in the Greek, in the original language, that literally mean the love of strangers, which manifests itself in kindness by providing them with food and with shelter. <clears throat> the word was typically used in the context of travelers, or rather caring for travelers. Uh, the ancient world, uh, some cities had inns, or what we would call a hotel, but they were typically unsafe, and they probably weren't that nice, and so travelers depended mostly on the locals, the local townspeople for their needs. And of course, there are a number of stories in the scriptures where travelers sought the hospitality of the locals en route to their destinations. Now, the one story that is probably most thought of is when Joseph and Mary uh, went to Bethlehem. And it was because of the emperor's census that everyone was returning to the city of their origin, which uh, it ended up overwhelming both the local inns and the homes of the townspeople. Uh, <clears throat> and so all that was available to Mary and Joseph, of course, was a stable. So the high king of heaven was born in a place of low reputation. Now in the scriptures, there are both good and there are bad examples of hospitality toward travelers. But what is interesting is the reaction of God and the people of God toward those who were inhospitable. Nearly every example, if not all, where a town or wealthy estate mistreated travelers or, were in, or, or they were inhospitable to them, it incurred the wrath of God, the wrath of man, or both. Hospitality was something that was both culturally and it seems from the scriptures morally expected from a community. It was just what people did and it's most certainly what the people of God should be doing. Now the question is, what does hospitality look like in our culture today? You know, most travelers today look for a hotel rather than knocking on uh, random doors. And, and those who would knock on your door are not really the same kinds of people that knocked on doors in the ancient world. Times have changed. And so I'm actually uneasy about saying we should open our doors to anybody that wants in. I think that we should, uh, rather, I think that would be naive I don't think it agrees with the historical context of Scripture. And so I think it's important to be practical, uh, uh, cautious, uh, discerning, and creative 
uh, when it comes to hospitality. Now also, in keeping with Romans 12, Christians should be more than just ready, willing, and waiting to practice hospitality. Those, that's all good, but it's too passive. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, the verb associated with the word hospitality is translated as given to hospitality. That's the New King James. Uh, it's also translated as practice or practicing with the NIV and the New American Standard. And then there's also seek to show hospitality in the ESV. The Greek word literally means to pursue. And because it's in the present tense, it means that Christians should be in the habit of pursuing opportunities to show hospitality. Christians should be on the lookout for the chance to be hospitable. And I think it's because of where I live, perhaps, that we have the opportunity to, to be hospitable to travelers. Not the kind that need lodging, but those that need road assistance. I don't know what it is about where I live, but uh, it's, it's not uncommon for people to break down uh, within 200 feet of our house <clears throat> or for people to be walking past our house to uh, Bucota and Tenino of all places. We've fed people, we've, we've given rides, we've stored vehicles, uh, we've helped repair vehicles, and of course we've had opportunities to share Christ. And usually it's enjoyable. Uh, there have been occasions where I've been, uh, uh, well, actually where I've avoided offering assistance because of uh, some circumstance or some check in my spirit. But we generally invite the opportunity. And we've had a good time doing it. It's been, I think, fun for even for our children. <clears throat> but anyway, those are examples of opportunity presenting itself to us. Looking for opportunity, I believe, requires more creativity which isn't my strong point, but some things come to mind. Some of us live in neighborhoods where people are fairly close to us. And if there are elderly, disabled, or single mothers, I can bet there are opportunities for hospitality. You know, if you can get the idea of hospitality out of the context of your home, and even perhaps in the context of other people's homes, or in their yard, especially during our crackdown, uh, not crackdown, rather, but lockdown, uh, you could make yourself quite useful. So I would say, go look, uh, be Christian, uh, be creative, be hospitable. Now in our, our text, when the author mentions entertaining angels unwittingly, he's probably thinking of Abraham's encounter uh, in Genesis 18, when he, he, he uh, entertained three people, uh, two of which were angels, and one was the Lord himself. Uh, Lot and Gideon and Samson's parents, they also entertained angels, but their stories aren't as charming. In Genesis 18, uh, the story goes this way. Abraham was sitting in the, the door of his tent when he saw three men nearby. And in traditional Bedouin style, he ran from his tent to meet and greet them. He bowed himself to the ground and he invited them to enjoy his hospitality by having them rest. And then he had their feet washed, and a meal was prepared for them. But not just any meal. He actually slaughtered a tender and good calf, the text says, and he served bread, butter, and milk. Interesting combination, saying that Orthodox Jews will not eat meat and milk together because of their interpretation of Exodus 23, 19. But the father of the Jews most certainly ate that combo meal and even fed the Lord and two angels the same. I can't imagine that the Lord would eat it if there was something wrong with it. 
Anyway, in the narrative, it seems to have dawned upon Abraham in about verse 10 that his visitors were not what they seemed. And by verse 14, it was clear that one, rather the one that was speaking to him was the Lord and those in his company were angels. So unwittingly, Abraham passed the test as he was entertaining angels and his example, I think, is quite stellar. Now, whether you will, whether you will or have entertained angels, uh, I think could make for uh, great speculation, but that's not my interest this morning. Uh, I'm with the author who is reminding us that hospitality towards strangers is a manifestation of Christian love and should be practiced by us. One more word about hospitality. I think it's important to keep in mind that hospitality has a way of softening uh, the hearts of people. Uh, when you're hospitable to people, it endears them to you and it creates opportunities to share the gospel. And so uh, it's something that I definitely think that we should be involved in. Hospitality for Christians is not simply uh, an end in itself. Um, as we meet physical needs, we should also be addressing spiritual ones. And we understand as Christians that the spiritual needs outweigh the physical ones. So in verse one, the instruction is to love those in the fellowship of the church. Verse two reminds us that our love should not be confined to our Christian family, but also to those outside the church. And then there's verse three. The author says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Now this verse is actually in keeping with verse one. It's loving believers from the fellowship who because they are incarcerated can't be in the fellowship, okay? So what does it mean to remember? What does it mean to remember? Well, here's what it does not mean. Remembering the prisoners does not mean that they should frequently cross their minds as if there was some virtue in just thinking of them. Uh, I understand the sentiment when people say, well, we'll be thinking of you. Uh, we hear it in politics a lot today. Uh, our thoughts go out to you. Um, but I don't really care. Uh, if you're gonna do something for me and you can't do something for me physically when I'm in trouble, don't just think of me. Pray for me. Because your thoughts are powerless. They don't mean anything, really. We cannot, as Christians, fulfill our Christian duty to them simply by them coming to our minds, no matter how convenient that would be. Uh, when we look in the Old Testament especially, we find God, uh, the text saying that God remembered his promise or God remembered his covenant. Uh, he does so, he remembers so that he might act on behalf of the people that he loves. So the idea of remembering here has to do with remembering for their sake in order that we might come to their aid and provide for their needs. You see, the prisons at that time left it to the family and friends to feed their incarcerated loved ones and provide what they needed. You know, having someone come to mind without acting would have the same result as forgetting. People perished in prison. So don't be comforted by just remembering someone in dire straits. Remember and do something. And if for whatever reason you're unable to do something as far as uh, their physical needs are concerned, pray for them. The author says, remember as if chained with them. Yeah, he wanted the experience of the prisoner to be the experience of the rest of the fellowship. He wanted his audience to feel what the prisoners felt, uh, their loneliness, their fears, their discomfort, uh, their hunger. Remembering 
the prisoners in this way would provoke the local fellowship to pray and to provide for their loved ones. But this isn't referring to just anyone in prison, but to believers, as the text says, who were mistreated. Uh, it was unjust imprisonment, uh, most likely due to uh, persecution. The last line uh, dictates this interpretation. He says, since you yourselves are in the body also. The author is saying that those in uh, his audience are a part of the body of Christ, just as these particular prisoners were, and should therefore be the concern of the whole church. Christian love doesn't just extend to those who can come to the fellowship, but to those who cannot. The body must care for itself uh, wherever it's found. Now the idea expressed here uh, is consistent with Paul's teaching about the body of Christ in, in 2 Corinthians 12. He's, as, he's talking about we as members, individual members, make up the various parts of the body, which is the body of Christ. Saying, and since we are all members of a single body, Paul says that there should be no divisions among us, but that all the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26. Thank you, Roger. I've been told you keep water. Oh, okay. Am I getting dry and raspy? Now, we were somewhere in our text. Yeah, let me repeat that. Concerning the body of Christ, Paul says that all the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26. Also, in Ephesians 4, in 11 through 16, Paul says that it's essential in the body of Christ for every member to contribute and to do its share for the edification of the entire body. So it is, if one of our members is incarcerated, especially because of persecution, we should come to their aid. And I don't mean a jailbreak. <laughs> we should be praying for them. We should be providing for them. Uh, we may not be able to bring things to them in the jail, but they probably have a home. They have a family. Uh, they have bills, things to be need to be taken care of. That falls on the family and upon the church. Also, just because this verse talks about ministering to believers in prison, it does not exclude or excuse Christians from doing uh, prison or jail ministries to unbelievers. You know, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, and prisons happen to be in the world, and we should be going to them. In reality, uh, prison ministries can be a form of Christian hospitality as much as outreach. So I would say, why not do two things at once? Now also, because we have a number of people in our church that do juvie ministry, I would say, remember those who do prison ministry as if serving with them, since you yourselves are in the body also. So remembering them. Be reminded to pray for them and encourage them. And as their needs come up for the ministry, that should fall on us. Also, I would say, remember to pray for those that they've been ministering to and I think we need to be careful that we don't let our guard down uh, with the lockdown. The souls that uh, the team has ministered to, uh, they're vulnerable. Uh, many of them are not at Juvie now, uh, probably a place that they should be, perhaps, and uh, we don't want the ministry to go to the wayside. So please be praying for those young people. 
So anyway, in verse one and verse three, we have loving the body of Christ, whether they're in the fellowship or in prison. And in verse two, we have the love of strangers. And then in verse four, we might say that we have the love of marriage. Now, if you were planning an exit strategy for some of your children, now I would say would be the time. Verse four, the author says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, I'm not fond of uh, the King James Version at this point because it presents the verse as a statement of fact when it should be a command, just like the other verses in this section are commands. It would be better translated, let marriage be honored by everyone and let the marriage bed remain undefiled. Uh, Hendrickson, he renders the text this way. He says, let marriage be precious to all of you and the marriage bed kept pure. Now, all modern translations, except for the New King James, maintain consistency with the rest of the context. And the context really should dictate the translation as well as the interpretation here. Marriage should be honored by God's people, okay? Now, the word honor means to value. It means to cherish, to consider precious, to hold in high esteem. To honor something is to hold it dear to oneself. And when something is truly honored, not just in word but in practice, it is protected, it is guarded, it's nurtured, invested in, it's blessed. And when we consider marriage, we should honor it the way that God does. In Matthew 19, when Jesus was defending the sanctity of marriage, he actually quoted Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. He referred to marriage prior to it being corrupted by sin. And it's very interesting to observe that marriage was the final touch on God's creation. You know, after each day of creation, God would look at all that he had created and he would say it was good. That, that follows uh, the first five days of creation. But on the last day of creation, at the end of the day, after the first couple was united in marriage, God said it was very good. You see, nothing else in creation received that much esteem and that kind of attention from God. Marriage was it. Mankind was God's greatest creation, but marriage was his greatest institution, and nothing has changed. We should be honoring marriage as God does, not just married people, but all of God's people. Now, of course, sin has certainly left its mark on marriage, but God's perspective, God's esteem, and his desire for marriage remains the same. You see, no human relationship compares to this one. Uh, no human institution is as valuable. And no human relationship is more foundational to the health of a society. And no human institution carries with it greater consequences than marriage. And when marriage is honored by all in the church, as God defines it and honors it, the marriage bed remains pure. The marriage bed, of course, refers to sexual intimacy. And this passage clearly implies that the nature of sex between a husband and wife is not only holy, it is the only context where sex is holy. And we as God's people have an obligation before God to protect its purity. So what is it that defiles the marriage bed? Now this whole context, this whole discussion is held in contrast to fornication and adultery. 
God honors marriage and he judges fornicators and adulterers. So any kind of sex that departs from God's design would defile the marriage. Anything that strays from his, his intent would contaminate it. Now, generational Christians or maybe we could say uh, Christianity traditionally has held or said that typically, uh, or the, the thought that adultery is the thing that defiles the marriage bed or when someone in the marriage views pornography. Of course, you know, physical adultery is defined as one person in the marriage engaging sexually with someone other than their spouse. And psychological adultery is when one person in the marriage lusts after someone else outside the marriage committing adultery in the heart. Now, these, these certainly defile a marriage, but defilement is certainly not limited to these things. And by today's practices, that would be quite naive. A better term for what would defile the marriage bed is actually the term fornication, because the term is very broad in scope, and it, it really includes every form of sexuality that deviates from God's will. We don't have to use you know, every perverse word to describe what is sexually profane. We can just call it fornication. Now, the examples listed above are traditionally the things that defile the marriage, but there are some who think that if they have their spouse's consent to engage in those things, if their spouse says they're okay with it, then it's okay. You know, it's not unheard of for married couples to view pornography together. It's not even all that uncommon for a spouse to permit their spouse to find intimacy outside the marriage or to give mutual consent to invite a third party for intimacy into the marriage, as if consent had anything to do with making it okay. You know, it's, it's not our spouse that we should be consulting for consent. It's the God of heaven. And he doesn't negotiate with anything that is profane. These are the grosser kinds of fornication, not, a, not somehow a, a lesser kind. Mutual consent does not give anyone a pass. It doesn't make it okay. It makes it grotesque and perverse and manipulative. And I don't need to cite the various studies that demonstrate all of the problems and the dangers that these cause for marriage because those studies don't, don't really matter. The sacred nature of God's design and his holy intent for marriage is the only thing that matters and it's definitely the only thing that will matter on Judgment Day. Marriage is to be honored the way God honors it and the way God defines it. And the intimacy in a marriage is to be holy and it's to be pure. But fornicators, the text says, and adulterers, God will judge. He's saying that those who depart from the context ordained by God for sexual intimacy and the way that he defines it those violators will be condemned. Now, to be even more clear, <clears throat> Paul said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Now, there, are, there might be those who are listening who are saying to themselves, he can't be serious. That's so unreasonable. Everybody has premarital sex. Well, listen to what Paul says. He says, do not be deceived. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not even one of them. 
You know, just because we live in a culture where fornication is the norm, it does not mean that God is going to judge on a curve because he will not. You know, the reality is Corinth was even more culturally accepting of deviant sex than ours is. And that's the culture that Paul was speaking to. He said it to them because that's what they were into. So if you're mixed up in anything that, parts, that departs from God's design for sex and marriage, now's the time to repent. Now's the time to get right with him. He will forgive you through the blood of Christ. In the same passage that I read from, Corinthian, uh, from 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God will wash you. He will sanctify you. He will justify you in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, whenever marriage is not honored, there is always chaos. There's chaos for the couple, the children, if there are any, the in-laws, for friends, and even for society. You know, the truth is, marriages can remain healthy in a terrible society, but no society can remain healthy without good marriages. It's doomed. There is no institution more precious than marriage, and there is perhaps no other institution more disrespected today. Above everyone else, the church should be celebrating. We should be protecting the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is something the church must get right for the glory of God, for the good of the family and for society. When it's defiled by those in the community of faith, it's, it's always just absolutely scandalous. It causes other believers to stumble and it gives the unbelieving community the opportunity to blaspheme God. And that was God's complaint about it. So we must honor we must protect and maintain purity in our marriages. And single people, you know, you have just as much obligation to honor, protect, and remain pure for the marriage that God has in store for you. And if you failed in this regard, repent. Get away from anything that keeps you in the habit, uh, the relationship, or the ungodly lifestyle, and be reconciled to God and his people. Don't wait another day. Now I know that you know, married people struggle in the context of sexual intimacy for a number of different reasons, which often leads to ungodly behavior inside and outside the marriage. You know, this must be resolved in your marriage. There must be mutual love and respect for each other. Otherwise, you're not honoring marriage or glorifying God in the marriage as this text is demanding from God's people. And if he's demanding it of us, he's got provisions for it. So together, you must submit yourselves to God and you must plead for his grace. Because in this context of your marriage, there really should be joy. There should be celebration, mutual love, and satisfaction. You know, this wasn't intended to be a, a marital counseling session, but an encouragement for us to honor God with our marriages by the instruction of his word. And, and I guess there are many more things that could be addressed, but... Maybe those are for a private conversation. Uh, and maybe I just invited myself or opened myself up for many conversations and, and, uh, and more marital counseling, all of which I'm, I'm uh, more than willing to do. Uh, I love to meet with married couples. Uh, it's more fun to meet with pre-marrieds, but uh, if you are struggling in your marriage, uh, if you're struggling before your marriage, uh, you need to reach out to somebody. Uh, you need to reach out to one of the elders, to a Christian friend that won't give you any slack, that loves you enough to rebuke you and call you, uh, to be straightforward, to call things what they are, and to, and to hold your feet to the fire to do what's right. Um, I'm willing to talk to you, 
But whatever the case, if there's difficulty, if there's trouble, uh, it needs to be resolved. And uh, you need to reach out for help. You need to find grace. So let's end here, and, uh, and then we'll pray. And just look forward to being with you, uh, or whatever that means today, uh, Thursdays and Sundays. And um, so yeah, so let's pray. Well, Father, um, as your word says, you are love. And anyone that knows you really loves people. They love others. And of all people in the world, the community of faith, your family, the household of God, should be loving. We should be loving one another. uh, And Lord, we should be loving those outside the body. We should be loving unbelievers. And Lord, as your people, um, we should be holding marriage in the highest regard. And Lord, I know that some of us are not doing that just based upon the way that we talk to our spouse, the way that we treat them, the way that we think about them, the ways that we don't think about them. And Lord, it's a dishonor to you. Uh, It casts a shadow on the institution that you have uh, provided us with that is most essential. And so Lord, I pray that in this regard, you'd help us to examine our hearts and minds, that you'd help us to see marriage as you do, and that you'd help us to honor it as you would have us honor it. Help us to not make any excuses. Help us not to blame our spouse for anything, but to look at ourselves and to live godly unto you because our obligation is to you. Uh, So help us, Lord, give us grace. Lord, I pray for young people that are struggling uh, sexually and uh, have, have walked in weakness. Lord, I pray that they would repent. I pray that they would see things as you see them. And understand the consequences, Lord, uh, not just in, Lord, in judgment, but Lord, in this life and how it will destroy future relationships if they do not repent, if they do not discontinue what they're doing. So Lord, help them to walk in holiness. Give them your grace. And Lord, I pray that for all of us, you grant us grace for the next few weeks and months and whatever all of that may look like. Help us to remain godly. Help us to be useful for your glory. Help us to be patient. Help us not to complain, but Lord, in this time, help us to be creative, uh, that we might be a blessing to other people, that we might glorify you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, uh, I would encourage you to read the, ahead in the text. If you're not uh, keeping up with us on Thursday nights, I encourage you to do that. Uh, there's more exhortation there. Uh, there's more opportunities, and um, so yeah, so we love you guys. Again, we miss you. And we look forward to being back together.